Ephesians chapter 3, please. Storytelling from its very earliest days has always included certain tropes, certain formulas that help frame a story to make it somewhat familiar and yet distinct. For instance, some very common tropes in storytelling include the damsel in distress. You know, the, the gallant hero comes to the rescue. Another would be the love triangle, you know, a very popular formula for a story. Well, one of those literary storytelling tropes is the fish-out-of-water story. And just as the name suggests, it's the story of someone who is taken from their natural habitat, their natural environment, and transplanted somewhere unfamiliar and strange to them. Now, the whole fish-out-of-water story trope is probably very familiar to you because many novels and television shows and films all use this same concept, the same formula, if you will. Because this character who is out of their natural environment has to learn to navigate and adapt to this new and strange place. And oftentimes it pre prevents, presents excuse me, a lot of really humorous interactions. You know, it was this odd character has to learn this new place. In classic literature, we might think of the story of uh, Mark Twain's novel, A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, who this Connecticut Yankee, because of some head injury, is transported back to ancient times among the knights and lords of the round table. And you have that whole fish-out-of-water story. A modern example in film, you might think of something like Crocodile Dundee, you know, where this Australian outback person is transported to the big city. Or, or maybe you have a Montana cowboy who ends up in Paris. You know, it's, just, it's humorous because it doesn't seem to match up. It's incongruous. Well, in one sense, Christian and the Christian life is a fish-out-of-water story in a way. Because we are called citizens of heaven, we've been born of above, and yet we live our existence, our earthly existence, here on earth. And oftentimes it puts us at odds with the culture around us. We sometimes feel like we don't fit. In fact, sometimes we look like we don't fit with the world around us. Because we live for heavenly values. We live for the eternal perspective. This fish-out-of-water story is a personal story in one sense. And it's not really meant to be humorous. The question for us as dual citizens of earth and also, more importantly, of heaven, is do we conform to the pattern of this world or are we transformed to live as citizens of heaven in the culture around us? Here's the truth that jumps out at us here in Philippians chapter 3. We must live as citizens of heaven, guided by heavenly priorities rather than driven by earthly lusts. We must live as heavenly, or citizens of heaven, guided by heavenly priorities rather than driven by earthly lusts. Though we live in this world, we do not live for this world. Our heavenly citizenship comes with certain privileges and responsibilities and expectations. The theme of citizenship crops up from time to time in the book of Philippians. For instance, back in chapter 1, verse 27, Paul says, only live out your citizenship in a way worthy of the gospel. He uses this word, 
politeuomai, from which we get the word politics. It means to live as someone who is a member of this society, as a true citizen of that kingdom. Well, this theme of citizenship would have really resonated with the Philippians, and we've mentioned this before. The city of Philippi was a Roman colony, and as such, everyone who belonged to Philippi had automatic Roman citizenship, which was a great privilege and blessing because Roman citizenship came with many privileges. For instance, a Roman citizen could not be uh, condemned or executed without a trial. Not true of others. Um, the Roman citizen had all kinds of other blessings and advantages because of this. And so the, the Philippians were very well aware of what it meant to be a citizen and what it meant to live out their citizenship. Well, by the end of Philippians chapter 3, Paul highlights this idea of citizenship and talks about our responsibility to live out that citizenship as ambassadors of Christ in this world. Now, starting in verse 17, and we're going to go all the way through verses, or chapter 4, verse 1, because I think that is the one section. Let's read together, starting in verse 17. Brethren, join in following my example, and note those who so walk, as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you again, even with weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Therefore, my beloved, and long for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. These verses really bring out this idea that we must live out our heavenly citizenship, putting heavenly priorities first, not living for earthly lusts. He starts in verse 17 with the basic command. The main thought here is in verse 17. Brethren, join us in following my example. Note those who so walk, for you have a pattern in us. Paul is setting himself as the pattern, encouraging the Philippians to follow him. And he identifies them in verse 17 as brethren, which is a term of affection, but also of identification. They are brethren, that is, they are beloved by Paul, but they're also brethren. In this family of God, they are united together in Christ. The invitation, though, is to follow my example, or to really join in following my example. Paul modeled what it meant to pursue Christ passionately, to want to know Christ. And now he says, join me, follow me. You know, human beings are great mimickers. We're, we learn by watching other people. We, we look and we see how things are done, and we see how others do them, and then we follow along. And so... Finding a good model is a wise thing to do. I mean, even in the church, there are people who model for us how to live wisely, how to remain pure, how to forgive, how to love others. He says, though, note those who so walk, that is, who walk like I do, 
uh, take them as a pattern as well. So not just, this isn't Paul just being self-focused here, saying, look at me, look at me. He's saying, anyone who has these heavenly priorities, look at them. He says, note them. It's this Greek word, skopio, which we get the word scope, like the scope on a rifle or a microscope or a telescope. It's to look at, to, to gaze at intently. He's saying, watch these people. Take note of them. Scope them out so that you can live like them. Now, previously, back in verse 14, he said, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call. His idea there was keep your eyes fixed on the goal, but now he says, keep your eyes also fixed on me. This is a smart thing because in running a race, if you don't have a good pace, oftentimes you'll wear yourself out or you'll come in slower than you ought to be. So what Paul is saying is, yeah, keep your eyes on the prize, keep it on the finish line, but also look for somebody else. And, and runners do this all the time. They will have somebody else set the pace. And then once you follow them, they're the pace setter. And you start to follow them, you get in the rhythm of their step. Paul is saying, I'm the pace setter. Follow my lead. Match your, your uh, run to mine. Match your speed to mine. Follow this pattern. And why did they need a pattern? Why did they need to have Paul as an example? Well, because there's basically two ways. And this passage unfolds like this. There are two paths, two ways, two roads to follow, two different citizenships, if you will. And the Bible is so good about this. It does this often. It'll divide. It'll make it simple. What are the two ways? Well, here they are. The way of the earthly citizen or the way of earthly citizenship and the way of heavenly citizenship. And he says, basically, follow my example so you can live out your good heavenly citizenship and don't follow the pattern of this world. And that's how it unfolds, starting in verse 18. Having given himself as the pattern, he now explains the, the other way, the way of earthly citizenship. And here it is, laid out in verse 18. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Look out for the way of earthly citizenship, he says. Don't conform to this pattern. Instead, follow my lead. See, the earth and the people of this world, and we understand that when I use the term world, I'm talking about not just the, the dirt under our feet, but the pattern of this world, the way people live, the way people think. He's saying the way of this world and citizenship on this earth is defined not by the priorities and values of heaven. It's defined by the values and priorities of earth. So not only should the Philippians scope out believers and follow them, they should also take note, take warning not to follow the way of the world. Let's look at verse 18 together, though. This is important. It begins with this very important word, for. For. Gives us a reason why the following Paul's, following Paul's example is so important. He's explaining. Follow my pattern. Why? Because there are many people who walk in a different way. There are many people, if you follow them, you'll end up in a very different place than where Paul is headed. Take note of that. Remember that. Because if you're following the wrong example, you're going to end up in the wrong place. 
Now, who are these people? He says, for many walk. Well, many who? I think he's talking about people of this world. He's obviously told the Philippians about them before because he says, I have told you often. So Paul was regularly warned the Philippians about this danger of following the people of this world and making them the pattern. He says, many walk, as I've told you often, and now I tell you again. He's reminding, he's reinforcing this. He says, I tell you again, even with weeping. I think this is so helpful. That this really defines, I think, the Christian attitude towards those who live out an earthly citizenship. Paul is not rejoicing that these people do their evil and are headed towards destruction. No, he is weeping. You see, Paul had a deep compassion for people. He doesn't talk about unbelievers unless tears are streaming down his face, and that's the case here. This is the basic Christian posture towards the unbeliever, a posture of compassion and concern. There's no joy in thinking about the enemies of the cross being crushed. It's immensely sad. D.L. Moody once told this story about his own conversion. As a young shoe salesman in Boston, he used to attend a Sunday school, Sunday school class, and he, he recalled this later. One day, I recollect my teacher came around the counter of the shop, and I was at work, and, and, put my hand, and he put his hand upon my shoulder and talked to me about Christ and my soul. I had not felt that I had a soul till then. I said to myself, this is a very strange thing. Here is a man who never saw me till lately, and he is weeping over my sins, and I never shed a tear for them. But I understand it now, and I know that it, what it is to have a passion for men's souls and to weep over sin. I don't remember what he said, but I can still feel that man's hand on my shoulder. There's many examples of believers through the ages who, have, who weep because of a lost world. And I think that we ought to pause on a verse like this and just say, how much does it break our hearts that a world is going into eternity without Christ? But for Paul, this was something not to rejoice in or be happy about, but something that caused him deep grief. So who are these people, these many who walk a different path? He describes them at the end of the verse. They are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Now you read that, and you might think to yourself right off that, well, he's talking about false teachers. He's talking about those people who are enemies of the cross. If we were to put it in the modern, you know, our modern setting, we might think of those people who are secularists, who are trying to remove religion from the public square. Uh, we might think of scientists and so-called academics who are constantly trying to undermine or disprove the Bible. We might think of political regimes or contrary religious movements that are actively persecuting the church. But I think to say all that, that certainly they are enemies of the cross, but is that all he's talking about? I think he's talking about the whole way of earthly thinking, earthly citizenship. Listen to how it's said in James chapter 4. James writes, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? You want to be an enemy of the cross? Just be a friend of the world. Just live out an earthly citizenship. That's what they're doing. So I don't think he has the idea of, you know, 
him against the false teachers, me, my pattern of the false teachers, he's saying it's, it's Christian examples versus the world's examples. He lays it out here and, and describes what these enemies of the cross, what their life is like. Let me break it down in four, four categories. First, their goal. Their goal is destruction. Their goal is destruction. That doesn't mean that they are intentionally choosing this as their goal, but that's the end result. That's where they're headed. Look at verse 19. It talks about these enemies of the cross whose end is destruction. Their finish line doesn't end in heaven, face to face with Christ. The finish line for the unbelieving world, for those citizens of the earth who do not know Christ, is destruction. Now, the word destruction is used in the New Testament often to refer to the final end of the unbeliever, those who are condemned to eternal punishment. Those who walk as citizens of earth, live for their own sin, and in their own sin, and reap the wages of their sin, death. Now, somebody might look at this word destruction in verse 19 and say, well, doesn't that mean that they are destroyed? They, they just cease to exist. There's not an eternal punishment. It's just annihilation. Well, that's not what the term indicates. In fact, how it's used throughout the New Testament indicates that it's an eternal destruction. It's a destruction that never comes to an end. It's a, an a eternal punishment. It says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, they shall be punished with everlasting destruction. That's the teaching of Scripture. Destroyed, but never being destroyed. The contrast here is clear. The goal of the heavenly citizen is heaven itself. The goal or end of the earthly citizen is destruction. I read the story of a young man who was converted during an evangelistic meeting. He was a simple fellow, worked in the mines, but he wanted to share his newfound faith with his co-workers. And so he collected some tracts and kind of learned how to explain the gospel to others, and just very simply was sharing this message. Now, some of them despised him for this. In fact, one fellow derided him and said, well, if you're so smart, why can't you tell me where hell is? The man thought for a second and gave a very profound answer. He said, yes, I can tell you where hell is. It is at the end of a Christless life. That is where the world is headed. That's the goal, destruction. Not only do we see their goal as destruction, we see their God. Their God is sensual pleasure. Look at the very next phrase. Their end is destruction whose God is their belly. They live for their stomach, as it were. See, the phrase here does indicate their belly, the, the part of your, you know, your stomach where the food goes. And indeed, there are a lot of people, maybe even today, who live for nothing else than to eat. But I think this phrase indicates more than just an addiction to food. It's not the only sin, I think, that Paul is thinking of here. It's a person who is dominated by their appetites. Whatever their body tells them, whatever they want to do, they do. They live, they're really their God is themselves. They live to satisfy whatever pleasure, whatever desire they have. Jesus said, a person cannot serve both God and mammon. Talk about money. Well, whatever 
Whatever satisfies a person, whether it is food, or whether it's drugs, or whether it's money, or whether it's success, or women, or whatever it might be, they live for the pleasure that life can give. Ancient Greek philosopher and historian Seneca mockingly referred to those who were, quote-unquote, slaves of their bellies. That's what it is. It's idolatry is what it is, really. Your, your God is you. And whatever pleases you, you provide. Citizens of the world are enslaved to sinful passion. They have no self-control. Indeed, they can't have self-control because they have come to worship as idols those things which they love. Paul warned in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4, in the last days, people would be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Their God is their belly. Third, though, we see not only their goal and their God, but also their glory. Their glory is in shameful practices. Verse 19, whose glory is in their shame. Earthly citizens glory in that which they should be ashamed of. A very fitting description of the 21st century. Now this, this concept of glory or exalting in something has this idea. It has the idea of calling attention to something or to someone. So if you're going to glory in someone or something, you're calling attention to it. You're, you're casting the spotlight on it. So when the Bible says glorify the Lord or magnify the Lord, it means we're to call attention to he who is greater than all. In this case, though, they're directing attention to shameful things. Just by way of illustration, I thought of this. A good illustration of what it means to exalt or glory in something. It reminds me of a toast. You know, this doesn't happen that much anymore, but it does, still does at weddings, for instance. You know, somebody takes their little spoon and taps on the glass, you know, bing, 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 and they get everybody's attention. And they say, I want to offer a toast to so-and-so. And the whole purpose of the toast is to cast attention, to put the, the spotlight on someone, talk about their accomplishments, talk about some good quality they have, and then everyone lifts their glass and they drink to that person. That's the idea of glorying in something. You're, you're calling attention to it. Here, though, the world calls attention to their shameful conduct. They intentionally put their sin in the spotlight. Concerning the people of Jerusalem, Jeremiah once said, were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not ashamed at all. They did not know how to blush. Not only did they not blush, they actually celebrate their sin. Romans chapter 1 verse 32 says, though they know God's righteous decree and those who practice such things deserve to die, not only do they do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. They're in the habit of celebrating and, and calling attention to that which they should feel shame over. And I could think of probably a dozen examples from today that would perfectly illustrate this. For instance, virtually every major city in the United States has a gay pride parade at some time in the year. And they literally parade abomination through the streets. And people who are drag queens and whatever else is all out there. And it's a, a celebration. It's this great uh, calling attention to that which should be a shame. Another example I can think of comes from 2015, in which a 
viral campaign was started called Shout Your Abortion by Planned Parenthood. And it was encouraging women to be proud of their abortions, of having killed their own children. This is the kind of thing that takes what should be a shame, what should be something they would be embarrassed to even talk about and, and promote it. And by the way, that, that whole story from 2015 is even more reproachful and awful when you realize that was that shout your abortion campaign was only a couple months after the videos which revealed Planned Parenthood selling the parts of children they murdered illegally so that's that's the world we live in where they're will they glory in their shame not only do we see their goal their God their glory but also their gaze in verse 19 who set their mind on earthly things they're gaze is on the earth they don't care at all about heaven they live for here and now they live for this world and nothing more their thinking is set on the world they think no higher than themselves or their surroundings it says here they set their mind on earthly things that word set their minds really has the idea not just of a fleeting thought it's not like they just think thoughts about the world it's that the world shapes their way of thinking. Their whole worldview revolves around the earth. Just to try and test this quality, this fact about the world and earthly citizenship, try to talk to somebody who doesn't, wanna, doesn't have any connection with Christ. Try and talk to them about heavenly things. Try and talk to them about the reality of heaven and have you thought about where you're going after you die. They don't want to hear it, generally. They're not really interested in eternity. They're not really interested in the consequences of sin or in death and what comes after. No, I'm just happy living my life right here, right now. That's the earthly mindset. Their gaze is fixed on the earth. This is how earthly citizens live. And honestly, we expect nothing less, do we? Earthly people think earthly thoughts. They live and wallow in their shame. They worship themselves, satisfying whatever appetites they might have. And their ultimate end is destruction. This is the way of the world. Don't follow it, Paul says. Instead, live out your citizenship. And that's where he turns, the way of heavenly citizens. The way of heavenly citizenship, starting in verse 20. The Bible says in verse 20, for our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able to subdue all things to himself. The contrast here is so stark. Earthly citizenship, enemies of the cross, worshipers of themselves, and now he says, for your citizenship is in heaven. We think and act differently than the world. Now, every culture is different. If you take somebody out from one culture and put them in another, they're going to feel out of place. Now, there are parts of culture that are bad, but for the most part, cultures are just different. It's not like being an American is somehow better than having, you know, living the culture of Venezuela or something. You know? So if you went to Venezuela, yeah, things would be different. You may not like it, but it's not necessarily bad. Well, as heavenly citizens, we're living in this world, which 
is overwhelmingly bad in its approach to life. It's, it's completely misguided. So it makes it even more difficult to live as heavenly citizens because we're surrounded by earthly citizens and the whole concept of earthly citizenship. So if you put your faith in Christ, you have had a transfer of citizenship. You now belong to heaven. The Bible here says, for our citizenship is in heaven. C.S. Lewis once stated, the fact that our hearts yearn for something earth can't supply is proof that heaven must be our home. The fact is, if you're born again, heaven is your home. It says at the beginning of verse 20, for our citizenship is in heaven. It links back to 17. So Paul said, follow my example. Why? For our citizenship is in heaven. You could cut out verses 18 and 19, and it would make perfect sense. It really, that's sort of a parenthetical statement. He, he says, listen, follow my example because you're heavenly citizens, but also be careful. There's, a, there's an earthly citizenship that can draw you in. So live out this heavenly citizenship. Live for, for heaven itself. It is now your home. You know, we even talk about this earth is not my home. I'm just passing through, right? Heaven is where our treasures are laid up, somewhere across the blue. That is where is our true home, the place where we really belong. So when we think about what does it mean to be a heavenly citizen, well, it means, first of all, we have a home in heaven. We have a home in heaven. Home is where you can be yourself, doesn't it? You kick off your shoes. You, can, you don't have to be afraid. You know, you know the rules for home. It's your home, after all. But if you've ever been to another country or outside of your own home country, it's a little bit anxiety-producing, isn't it? <laughs> because you don't want to say or do the wrong thing. You don't really belong there. You know, they can kick you out at any moment. It's not home. It's not. We, as citizens of heaven, we have a home in heaven. Jesus said, if I go away, I go to prepare a place for you. That's for you. However, being a heavenly citizen means that we should reflect the character and quality of heaven, even when we're here on earth. Well-known New Testament commentator F.F. F. Bruce writes, just as citizens of a Roman colony were expected to promote the interests of the mother city and maintain its dignity, so citizens of heaven in an earthly environment should represent the interests of their true homeland and lead lives worthy of that citizenship. We're to live as citizens of heaven even though we're here on earth. Just like I would hope if you traveled to another country, you would behave in a way, I would hope, that would reflect well upon your home country. That doesn't always happen, of course. In fact, some countries you'll go to and people have a very low view of Americans because they've had too many bad experiences with Americans. But ideally, if we're going and, and acting in a way that's dignified and honorable, we're actually, we're actually presenting a good view, a positive view of our home country. That's what we're to be doing on earth, living for our home, even though we're away from home. Our citizenship, he says, is in heaven. Not only do we have a home in heaven, we also await the coming of Christ. You notice this? 
says our citizenship's in heaven. We long for that place. We want to be there. And we eagerly await from the Savior. That's what we're looking for. It's not just a, a beautiful land with golden streets and, you know, wonderful views. What makes heaven so wonderful is who's going to be there. Richard Baxter, the Puritan theologian, said it like this. My knowledge of that life is small. The eye of faith is dim. But it is enough that Christ knows all and I shall be with him. See, we're looking for Christ. After all, Jesus said, if I go to prepare a place, I will come again and receive you to myself. So Christ is coming back. And he says here, interestingly, in verse 20, we wait eagerly for the Savior. That term eagerly waiting indicates, in fact, the, the word kind of indicates standing on your tiptoes so that you can see. It's like if you're waiting for something with anticipation, you know, on your tiptoes, stretching your, craning your neck to, to see what it is that you're so wonderfully anticipating. A uh, really good illustration of this, uh, a couple of weeks ago, Ashley showed me a picture that she had taken of all three of our kids and our dog all standing at the front door. And the, sto the door was open, the, the storm door was closed, and they're all just standing there looking out the window. And she said, I took this because they're all waiting for you to get home from work. <laughs> and sometimes I pull up to the house and I'll see these little faces in the window, you know, looking out at me. Oh, he's home. See, that's the idea. As heavenly citizens, we're looking for Jesus to return. We're waiting with anticipation for him to come back. Because you know what? This earth, we're not living for this. All that's around us, this is not our home, okay? We're looking for Christ and his return when we shall be with him and shall be like him. Because not only do we wait for the coming of Christ, we also hope for the resurrection. Verse 21, when Christ comes, he will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. The resurrection, those who are alive and remain when Jesus comes will be transformed. Won't have to die. But those who have died in Christ will be raised and given new bodies. He's going to transform. The Bible says our lowly body. Now, the King James says our vile body. Now, that word meant something a little bit different back in the 1600s. But the word doesn't mean that we are vile or disgusting or anything like that. It means humble. It means uh, fragile in a way. So our lowly body, our humble body, is a body that is prone to corruption. It's a body which decays and deteriorates, breaks down, stops working. Does this sound familiar, by the way? Uh, it's a body that aches and, and hurts. It's a body that doesn't like to get up in the morning. It's a body that doesn't work like it used to. It's a body that has bad knees and a bad back and a bad neck. You know what I'm, you know what I'm talking about here. It's a body that is breaking down because of sin and age and all of those things combined. Well, when Christ comes, this humble, lowly, corruptible body is replaced with incorruption, as it says in 1 Corinthians 15. And we are going to be given a glorious body. What kind? Well, one which accords with his glorious body. Now, don't ask me, well, Reed, what's, what's our body going to be like exactly? In the resurrection. I don't know. I don't have exactly it all scoped out. But I do know this. 
when we receive our resurrected bodies, they will be glorious. That is, they will, they're going to be designed for heaven to live forever without breaking down. And they're going to be like Christ's body. Christ was raised from the dead on the third day. And we know that he appeared to his friends. They recognized him. Now, Jesus uniquely carried the scars of his crucifixion, but all the other scars and, and open wounds that they had seen on him last were all healed. Jesus was able to eat a meal with his disciples. So if you're looking forward to eating in eternity, I think that's going to be a possibility. Also, we know that his body was not like ours in some ways. He was able to enter a locked room, apparently, without opening the doors. He was able to do things that perhaps our bodies can't. So, again, I don't know what all our bodies will be like, but I know they'll be like his. And what more could you possibly want? See, Jesus is the pattern of our resurrection. We are going to be conformed to his body. Fourth, though, not only do we have our home in heaven, not only do we have uh, hope in Christ and, and trust in him, but we also trust in God's power here at the end of verse 21. It says, how is this going to be accomplished? According to the working by which he is able to subdue all things to himself. By God's great power, he's going to accomplish this. He's going to transform us by that power. Paul had previously said in this passage, I want to know the power of his resurrection. Well, here it is. It's the power he has to subdue all things to himself. This is Paul's way of saying his power over all the universe is a power which he calls the stars to shine and the earth to spin. It's a power which he, he uses and demons tremble. It's a power he uses and calms the sea with a single word and sends a terrible storm. It's the power by which he can make something from nothing and make something into nothing. It is a power which is incomprehensibly great. And that's the power by which our lives will be transformed in an instant. And then finally... Chapter 4, verse 1, which really belongs with chapter 3, he says this. It's sort of a wrapping it all up. Therefore, because of all this, my long-for and beloved brethren. So he, he speaks to them tenderly. Beloved, long-for brethren. He calls them my joy and crown. These are people he deeply cared for. The command is this. Stand fast in the Lord. Hold tightly to him. This stand fast really bookends with chapter 1, verse 27. Really making this the, the closing of the heart of the letter. The last part of chapter 4 is really just application of these truths. He desires that they remain steadfast as citizens of heaven in a world that is crooked and perverse. The call for us is to live not like that, but as heavenly citizens, longing for Christ's return. So I want to close with just two final thoughts. As citizens of heaven, here's what we should do. Number one, we should care about the world, but live for another. I love this in this passage, that Paul is weeping because there are those who walk as enemies of the cross. He longs to, to reach them. He cares about the people of this world who are dying, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose Glory is their shame. He, he cares about them. And I think we should have compassion 
We should care about this world, and yet we don't live for this world. We live for heaven. We build up our treasures there. We invest ourselves in what really matters for eternity. So care about this world, live for another. We should also serve Christ now, but look for his coming. Get busy. Paul does, never tells believers to just sort of sit down and wait for Jesus to return. It's always keep on serving, stand fast, be firm, share the gospel, present the message, love one another. It's active. There's many things we should be doing, and there's things, folks, we should be doing right now, today, as believers. Living out our faith. And yet, let's never lose sight that Jesus is coming back soon. There's always sort of this glancing to the sky. In everything that we do, it's always with this realization that Christ is coming back. Someone asked D.L. Moody how he was so effective and got so much done. And he responded, he said, I think one of the reasons is that I've never lived a day without a conscious awareness that Christ could be returning today. And maybe if we had some of that in our blood, we might find ourselves more effective in living out our faith and serving the Lord here and now.